1: Action Park Media
2: Welcome to Dom's Den. Today's guest has spent over 30 years in show business as a writer, producer, and showrunner. He's been involved in a long list of successful shows such as 24, Hawaii 50, MacGyver, and Magnum PI. He also wrote a screenplay for an ironically accurate movie that look forward to discussing later Demolition Man. We'll get into that. That Uh, Everybody, it's my pleasure to welcome into the den Peter Linkoff. Welcome, 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 buddy.
3: Yeah, buddy. Thank you. thank you. Great to be here, guys. I've been I've been loving the podcast, so thank you. And by the way, you said thirty years. That uh, that's actually very kind because I think <laughs> you shaved a couple off. So thank you for that. We didn't we want, feel
2: younger. <laughs> we didn't want to age you too much in the opening. Yeah. <laughs> hey, man, I'm up there too, man. I I, I, I looked at Bron- what Bronx, That was like. What 92? you You're a kid. <laughs> Norm, Shit,
3: <especially laughs> you're a kid, man.
2: <laughs> right, but look at you. You got the hair. He always looks good always jealous
4: Uh, as
3: a hair it's quickly going trust me
4: (laughs) it looks full it looks good
3: (laughs) (laughs) it looked good a year ago two years ago
2: so we want to know the journey from Canada to Hollywood how did that come about
3: uh (laughs) well I grew up um so I grew up in in Chamonix Laval which is a suburb of Montreal so uh and uh, a very small community. If you ever watch any of my shows, I always had this little animation at the end of it with a house with a snowplow going by. And, and that was my house. That was actually an animation of my house. And uh, it always reminded me that uh, my dad would wake me up really early in the morning to shovel the snow and I'd go out, I'd shovel it. And then 10 minutes later, a snowplow would go by and fill that, uh, fill that. what I did back, back the up. Worst. So it sort of like reminded me of the, the TV business as soon as you're done with one script, there's another one, you know, that you have to, you have to write. So, um, but I grew up in this, uh, I grew up in a, in this, uh, in this neighborhood Laval. Um, uh, we were six, you know, six people in a house. Uh, um, uh, and the closest thing to the entertainment business was the national inquire, which my mom would read regularly. (laughs) And that was like our connection to Hollywood. And, um, But as a kid, and you know, my mom, I think she, you know, she had always wanted to be a writer, and my uncle was, um, you know, fancied himself a comedian, and you know, uh, uh, I think there was a lot of arts uh, in our family that was unfulfilled, and um, and I always, I always wanted to be a, a writer. I, I mean, I, I think I wanted to be an artist or a writer, and I definitely didn't think I was a good enough artist. But I, I would you know draw cartoons for the school newspaper. I would you know write comedy for the for my animation uh, uh, sketches. I wrote a, a play when I was a kid called Bar Mitzvah Man and Ruben the Kosher Crusaders. Um, so I, 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 I the early to writings. Write, uh, what's that?
2: The early writings.
3: Yes, that <laughs> That's
0: great. But I
3: always wrote it, whether it was like plays or short stories or, or um, even, you know, poetry, I always wrote, uh, it just seemed very odd to my friends, because, you know, we'd go skating in the afternoon, and then I'd go home and, you know, they'd be, uh, you know, listening to records, and I'd be writing poetry. And uh, it was, uh, you know, it was, it was, um, it was, it was something I was very passionate about, and and, uh, always had dreamt that if I could make a living doing that. Uh, it would be the most amazing job in the world. But, you know, I grew up in a family that, uh, you know, we had one shower so uh, for six people. Uh. So you had to schedule a time that you had to take a shower. So the idea that uh, uh, my parents wanted all of us to do, way, you know, to really have professional careers and be able to get two showers uh, was the goal. So um, it's the greatest. My, it's the greatest
4: motivation, right there.
3: <laughs> yeah, not having to make Jeez. an appointment for a <laughs>
2: What well, well, was um, the was the family supportive? What the what uh, the, the writing?
3: Yeah, my dad wanted me to be a lawyer. Both my brothers became lawyers. My sister became a, a headhunter. All professionals. My dad wanted me to be a lawyer. I went to um, I went to one year McGill, uh, which is a, a big school in Canada studying political science with an eye towards uh becoming a lawyer and i could not focus um i didn't know at the time i think i definitely had undiagnosed add and i think i just was not focused on uh the end game which was being a lawyer i just Mm -hmm. didn't have the. um i just didn't think i had the brain for it and uh i would be you know taking uh, you know, I'd be taking my class. I wouldn't be going to my classes. I'd be doodling on my books. I'd be writing poetry, uh, under a tree on the campus. I, and I ultimately ended up switching to film school, um, and, um, did a couple of years at uh, a local film school in Canada called Concordia university. Um, I wrote a script, uh, for a, a script writing class and, um, I thought it was pretty good. My, my teacher didn't think it was very good, but I thought it was pretty good. Um, and I had read the the year I wrote that script. I had, I had read an article in, in, uh, uh, life magazine. Um, and it was like an entertainment issue. And, uh, it talked about Steven Spielberg's company, Amblin entertainment, and it showed pictures of what it looked like. And, um, And at the same time, I had read another article about Chris Columbus, who wrote Goonies and Gremlins, and that was in Rolling Stone magazine. And in the article was a um, a story about his teacher. I think it was uh, I think it was Jesse Kornbluth was his teacher at NYU. And I thought, okay, well, I could do this. I mean, if 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 Jesse Kornbluth liked Chris Columbus's script so much and got him an agent, and ultimately this guy started writing for Spielberg. I could do the same thing. Right. Why not? I, I thought, so, well, yeah. I, I naively not? thinking, naively thinking, well, I wrote a script and it's it's pretty good. Uh little did I know it wasn't good at all. I just, you know, I just was, you know, ignoring the obvious that it just was bad. Um, but I ended up tracking down Jesse Cornbluth. I called uh information in New York, tracked him down, asked him, uh, begged him actually to read my script took him about a month to read it, and he said, it's horrible. And um, he said, you show potential, and uh, there's something there, and you should probably keep at it. And that was the little sort of that That's was what you needed. Oh,
2: yeah, the spark. Yeah,
3: that I needed for somebody to think like, okay, well, maybe with a little practice and a little, you know, um, you know, grind, this, this, you may get it, um, ended up. Uh, going to take a summer course at UCLA. A friend had recommended me taking a summer course there. Uh, And uh, so I went to LA with that script, by the way, uh, which I had rewritten. I had done a little bit of a pass on it, but I went to uh, UCLA, uh, took a course there. I think it was the summer course was eight classes. And I went to about three of them uh, because I was so like, I was so crazy about being in LA and seeing things and just experiencing, you know, the city that I just forgot about the classes. Uh, and, um, and then I realized the summer was coming to an end and, uh, um, I needed to do something cause I did not want to go back to school. um, You know, my teachers at the time were not very supportive. You know, they were they were churning out artists, and they thought I was I was writing entertainment, which was very different for them. Art and entertainment were two separate things. I was doing music videos, and I was writing scripts about superheroes, and that's not what they wanted. So I was scared of going back to school uh, and maybe graduating and ending up, you know. Um, you know, looking for a job somewhere. So I thought I have this opportunity. I'm in LA. Uh, I'll look for about three or four weeks before uh, the summer was coming to an end. I would look for an internship and maybe make some connections um, that would help me uh, when I end up graduating. So I found on the, UCLA had this board of internships and I found uh, a production company that was on the bus route. Uh, down Wilshire Boulevard. Um, so I, and that was, I didn't have a car, I didn't have any way to travel. So um, I used to take this uh, bus a couple of days a week to this producer. Her name was Faye Schwab. She'd done a couple movies. Uh, and uh, I was answering phones for her and, you know, doing a bunch of, you know, different odds and ends for her. And one day I was in the elevator. With her and she said, What do you want to do? And I said, I want to write. And she said, Do you have anything you've written? And I said, Well, I just happened to have this screenplay. Um, that was the one I wrote that you know, my teachers had said was horrible, that Jesse Cornblue said that that had some potential. And I let her read it. I think she came back the next day and she said, This is pretty good. I'm gonna option it. Wow. And uh, I'm not gonna give you any money, but I'm gonna option it. And um, that was enough, which that was enough for me to quit school that was enough for me to quit school and move down to la full time and really take a stab at writing as a career right uh so i left one year shy of graduating my dad gave me 2500 bucks i came to la subletted a place um and just wrote like a maniac uh one script after another
2: no more wildwood
3: no, I had to. I unfortunately had to give up Wildwood. Uh, I had to give up that, those those summers uh, in Wildwood. I I, I, <laughs> I, I, I remember but, uh,
2: we were we were in Hawaii, and he's telling me, "Yeah, you know, um, you know, during the summers, I would go work in Wildwood." Like, Wildwood, Jersey. New Jersey? <laughs> I used to go there all the time.
3: Yeah, but yeah, I That's what he would do. I work under the table. By the way, there is a big part of the story I I, I left out is. Uh, I'm Canadian, so the idea of coming to work in L.A. is in the States. That's unheard of. Like, you know, I didn't have a visa or anything. So my dad rode me down on his motorcycle uh, to Plattsburgh, New York, (laughs) drove over the border. uh, And uh, we said we were just going for a day drive. Um, And uh, uh, he would drop me off in in Burlington. I took a a plane to New York and then in New York to L.A., um, so I was illegal for a long time. Um, I guess it's statute of limitations or something. I could talk about it now, but, uh, <laughs> was for, um, for, a, for a, uh, a big part of the, you know, my first couple of years of living in LA and, you know, just writing script after script. And, uh, ultimately I had optioned one of the scripts I wrote, um, and then, I was, I had $167 in the bank. I was desperate. I had, I, I had read, um, Shane Black's script for Lethal Weapon. And I thought the writing was so spectacular that he had this very unique voice. And I, up until that point, I was, you know, literally mirroring every voice that I had heard. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was writing to a tone that wasn't me. Um, and when I read Shane's script, I said, he, he wrote with the freedom of, of like, of not stick. You know, I was so focused on, um, on, you know, writing a certain of thinking that this is the way you're supposed to be writing. And I didn't have a voice um, on the page. Um, and I decided I'm going to write one more script. And then decide whether I, you know, I could stay or not. Because again, I had $167 in the bank. So I came up with this idea. And really it was based on the fact that a friend had lent me this cassette uh, called Dream of the Blue Turtles uh, by Sting. Oh,
0: yeah, yeah. Uh,
3: and <laughs> I had a car. Yeah, you remember that? So I, I had that. And I had, a car. I had a car that didn't have a radio. So I put my boom box in the back seat and um so I had the cassette in there and my boombox was broken so it kept replaying the same song over and over again and that was demolition man yeah, and wow. there was a line, and there was a line wow. in that song called don't mess around with the demolition man mm-hmm. and I thought to myself like who Love. is this guy that you don't want to mess with um and I sort of wrote a st- because it was like it played like a metronome every day I would drive to my job I hear that song over and over again, and it became this metronome. It became this thing that was playing in my head. Um, and at the same time, there was a um, there was a story about uh, Walt Disney being frozen, and that was on the cover of the National. Oh, I remember that. <laughs> Yeah, Yeah, you remember that? Yeah,
2: cryogenically uh, frozen. I think he's still there.
4: He's
3: still there.
2: (laughs) He
4: didn't go uh, anywhere. (laughs) So is Ted Williams, right? We haven't figured out how to reanimate him yet.
2: But so is Ted Williams, I think,
3: right? I think just Ted's head, just his head. Just the head, They're preserving his brain. It would be nice to get to meet him now. Um, (laughs) But I, so I came up with a, I came up with something that sort of was a marriage of things that I liked, you know, a cop. You know, something in the in the in the cop world and science fiction and you know uh chirogenics. And um, so I came up with this pitch. And it was uh, right before Christmas. And uh I had met, and this was through a cold call. This is I was very, you know, I was I was gonna do anything to get my scripts right back in the day. So uh I had met an executive who worked for Joel Silver, uh, and I called her up to see if I could come pitch before Christmas time. She said, I don't have any slots open. I said, can I at least pitch you, you know, give me five minutes. Let me pitch you this idea. And I pitched her demolition man. And, and I really like pitched my heart out and at the end of the call. She said, I don't get it. And uh, she said, Merry Christmas and hung up. And uh, oh, I was devastated. <laughs> uh, I know. I know wow. that feeling. Yeah. Up. yeah. <laughs> I know. That's that happened at <laughs> times, by
4: the way. Um, But it did. It it (laughs) did.
2: Demolition Man.
4: Oh no, he's going to get there. And I want to know what happened next. Okay. How long does it take to rebound
1: from that?
3: I want. I. I just wanted to prove her wrong that the idea was solid. So I went to Florida. I went to go visit my parents uh, who were there for the winter, and uh, I saw them for about a week, um, and just buckled down and wrote the script in about two weeks. And, uh, and, uh, and I did it really to prove that the concept was, was strong. And, um, and I didn't have an agent, uh, at the time, but I showed it to an actor friend who showed it to an agent and the agent, uh, took the script and sold it, had a bidding war, sold it to a company called Corolco. Um, I don't know if you remember them, uh. Uh, Mm. wow. I'm really dating myself. (laughs) (laughs) It's, it was Andy Vanya's company. And anyways, they were, they were pretty big. Like they did the Terminator two sequel. And so they bought the script and, um, for a lot of money. And I, I went from, you know, driving a salvage vehicle to now, uh, at least on paper, I was going to, you know, have money to actually buy a car and, and be able to eat more than one meal a day. and yeah. You know, all of a sudden. And the minute the script sold, the producer that I worked for, um, who I worked, you know, I was working answering phones um, uh, for, uh, came out and said that I, that was a work for hire because I was employed by her that anything I wrote under, you know, my uh, employment, they own. So even though I wrote, so even though I wrote the script before work and after work, at lunchtime, it's still she was claiming that it fell under the um,
1: work, you know, under the employment
3: agreement that we had, which, you know, we didn't have an employment agreement, she paid me 300 bucks every two weeks under the table. Um, That was the employment agreement. But So the minute Krolko found out that there were, you know, that there was it was going to be an issue that they would have to attach this other producer, they dropped the project. And um, ultimately, ironically, it ended up going back to Joel Silver, (laughs) who I originally pitched it to a year earlier. That's
2: amazing.
4: And he
3: got uh, everybody paid off and got Warner Brothers to buy it, and and uh, it got made. And then all the money that they paid that producer came out of my fees. So I ended up making real small amount of money on that movie um and uh but it 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 was you know <clears throat> it was the greatest thing it, it's um having 167 dollars in a bank is a great motivation to uh to do something uh that could change your life and it, and it definitely did because it got me so many jobs after that and people are still obviously still talking about that movie to today so
2: oh yeah
4: there's so much dump go into it we're talking well, so much i,
2: about I this. mean You introduced the world to sandra Bullock
4: Uh uh-huh
2: right well
3: you know it's funny there was another actress who was playing that role and after a couple days they realized the chemistry wasn't working and sandra bullock had just done a movie called wrestling ernest hemingway and she had a a deal to do a second movie and they literally you know within hours of looking at dailies they just you know put her in the movie uh she wasn't originally cast that's crazy but that wrestling Ernest Hemingway movie, which she was really good in, they saw such potential for her. Um, that they put her in this in this movie. And uh, and she was obviously great in it. It's
2: great. Yeah, stranger things have happened. Oh, uh, yeah. It's it's weird how things play out, you know. But so many predictions in So this movie. many.
4: <laughs> the power of foreshadowing right? here. It's insane. Everything <laughs>
2: is voice controlled. Board meetings with everyone on screens, Zoom. We're
4: all Zoom. Okay, what this, are we doing right? now? Is it?
2: <laughs> no physical contact. Greeting, following, pandemic.
4: I know. No, that, I used to love watching them shake hands in that movie where they would just put their everyone hands on. Everyone is low No one's touching each other.
2: Right, we we, we 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 don't have but microchips tracking us, but everybody I has got, a cell phone, a phone, which <laughs> yeah, that's a the same fucking shit, right? <laughs> that's a well, you, Wait a second,
3: how do you know you don't have microchips yeah. tracking? Fair you? enough. Hey, fair enough. Who knows?
2: I think maybe uh, mm-hmm. that's what that second shot was. <laughs> <about>. <laughs> there it
3: is. Yeah, yeah. the uh, first uh, shot is really for COVID. The second <laughs> is the microchip. Oh,
2: yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, reference to Schwarzenegger being president. Well, <laughs>
4: well it came pretty gotta, close. <laughs> Not far off.
3: Back then, he was talking about politics. Yeah, so. yeah,
4: wow. yeah. That
3: was right. I wasn't a stretch.
2: No,
4: and I love everything else. The limitations on people, like when they would, I, I, I still make this joke. Like when my, one of my kids messes up and they curse, I'll just be like, "John Spartan, you are fined one credit for violation of the verbal morality statute." <laughs> <laughs>
3: These things hold up over time. It's amazing. Uh, That's
4: yeah. funny um, the three I'll,
3: seashells, everybody uses that now,
4: don't they? Oh, of course. Oh, no one knows how to use them, but we, we we use the reference. But I mean, where do you start? Uh, I, I went down a wormhole, okay? When I knew we were interviewing Peter, I went down a wormhole, okay? <laughs> and I actually found out that there are several different theories of how to use the three seashells. And the, the one wow. I found actually had illustrations, and it said you take the first—this is rough— so you take the first two seashells and you use them as chopsticks to collect the fecal matter together. <laughs> and then when that's done, you take the third seashell to clean up the remainder. Now, the one thing that people, first of all, that's insane. But the one thing I don't understand is people are then disposing of these seashells in the toilet. I don't, I don't get that. I
2: don't know a toilet that can handle these seashells. I think you seashell.
4: need to take a pottery. It's a futuristic <laughs> <laughs> I just disorder.
3: love that there's people out there figuring out how to do this. It's amazing. <laughs> a little
1: force,
3: you know. Right it's there. a good. It's sort of a good lesson as a writer, right? To create some kind of mystery that people will talk about for thirty years. But we'll, yeah. look at their imagination. <laughs> I,
2: I mean, to sit down and think. I, I look. I've always said it. You know, writing is. I wish I had that discipline. Uh, we we spoke personally too. you like, you know, you should write something. You know. I have the ideas, I, I just, it's just a discipline I don't have, Karen, you have it, you do it, you have the animated movie coming, you know, you're putting together the animated movie, uh, Pierre the Pigeon Hawk, you sat down, you wrote this thing, you created this world, Peter's done it, time's over. Um,
4: well, I understand where where Peter comes from, he I've, talks I, about, I, And I could understand
2: yeah. it, Um I just wish I could do it.
4: When he he talks about the ADHD, like, you know, before, I mean, he, you know, when we grew up, there was really nobody discussing or diagnosing ADD or ADHD. And I used to read things while I was reading them. While I was reading words in school, my mind would be somewhere else. That's the problem. Recreating. That that was it. I would disappear. So writing is like when you can sit there and you can let your mind go crazy. That's the only, like having, like writing for someone who has ADD, ADHD it's an incredible escape from the craziness that goes oh, I on. Would in
2: your brain. I would imagine. I would imagine. And I also, I also wanted to go back to that, Peter. Um, there are so many people in the business that are writers, showrunners, who were lawyers. They were uh, lawyers. Yeah, they would. They they have and a they law degree, writers. and and they I, I every time I I you know we you know you you wind up having conversations with them and. I just didn't like waking up in the morning, and I didn't like being a lawyer.
1: Mm -hmm. Blame him.
2: And (laughs) uh, (laughs) Nick Santora is one of them. Uh, He was a lawyer, and then you know, started writing. He wrote a spec script for like Sopranos, and then next thing you know, doing Prison Break. Yep. And you know, it's. uh, I I guess you find. You're calling later when you're doing your you love. It's now, not work. But think about how many people don't take that leap. It's scary how many people are Fear. doing their jobs and they're miserable and they could be actors, they could be writers, they could be musicians, they could be composers, they could be in all different parts of the arts.
1: Well, Peter said he was, you know, naive that he jumped into this writing thing. But however, but he that's also had an important yeah. <laughs>
2: He also had an important component he had a family that supported him
1: mm-hmm. that's important
2: and that's super important I could tell you coming from I'm, a, I'm I'm first generation American so a lot of that generation came from it it's work or you go to school it's work yeah do you know how many times I had to leave a job because they wouldn't let me out on an audition I yeah. needed to go and I'm like yeah, I'll see you later. Uh, I'll find another job tomorrow, you know, because I could always dig a hole.
1: Yeah.
2: You know, I might not be able to wait tables, uh, but because I I was fucking horrible. uh, Wait a minute. You waited uh, tables? Yeah, because I don't, I really (laughs) didn't like uh, being around people, (laughs) you know, and uh, so I'd rather, I would usually find jobs to, um, I had some horrible jobs, but. You know, jobs where I could just do, you know, work with my hands, yeah. which I like to do and and they know I wanted to be an actor and and you know, sometimes I had to leave and I would just make it up on the weekends and do overtime and that kind of thing. Yeah. And it and it and we talked about this on some of the other podcasts, some of the put some of the other guests. It requires sacrifice. Think. Look at the things that you had to do, Peter. You know, boom box in the back of the car. The car didn't have a radio. You had to take a job, a person paying you under the table, then trying to fuck you later on, which is with the money. Very Los Angeles.
4: Very Los Sick. Angeles. Yeah,
2: but yeah, you, you, you know, you, you you have to navigate those choppy waters sometimes. You know, and it's it's um, and this is for people who are trying to get into the business and. And have this, have these preconceived notions of of what it is. The reality is, it takes sacrifice, it takes persistence, and at the same time, trying to find the balance with patience, which I don't have a lot of. Hmm. Um, till this day, I, I always want to work. I always want to work. If I'm oh, wow. not working a month, I'm, I think uh, I think uh, every everything is crumbling down and and uh it's just because for me just like when peter when his his friends were listening to records and he was writing his poetry that and i you know I'm not a psychologist here but that's therapy for him and me yeah. auditioning working on a character, building a character, trying to find all these different colors, that's my therapy. And um, you que- made it. You question
4: know. question for you, uh, Peter. At what point did you have a conversation with her? What was it like when that project went back to Jill Silver and you got to reconvene with the people who passed on your idea originally? Yeah.
3: Well, the executive who passed on it, it wasn't there anymore, so I didn't get to no. gloat. But, uh, <laughs> I don't. I don't think I. I. Uh, you know. Look. To what's be honest. What's the time frame? What's that?
2: What's the time frame from Christmas to? About, to I, uh,
3: uh, from Carolco to Warner Brothers. Yeah. Uh, a year. We uh, started going to gone. deposition. An
2: executive gone, gone yeah, in yeah. a year. Yeah. Gone. Yeah.
3: yeah. 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 See and you she, later. It was a long-term, long term. Long uh, long term. It's uh, a brutal business. Employee, uh, that was that was uh, that I picture. But to be honest, I don't think I did a good when. Now that I think about it. Uh. I don't know if I did a good job pitching. I probably didn't. Uh, and it probably was so convoluted that she had every right to say no. Um, but in my mind, I saw the movie. I I saw it. I just felt like I got to sit down and write this thing. And that was going to be my lethal weapon. That was going to be in my voice. Uh, I even, you know, it's interesting. I I, when I had the script sent out, uh, it, w- it said "Demolition Man," written by two EXL three hundred eight, and that was my license plate number because <laughs> because I didn't want anybody in the business confusing Peter Lenkoff, the guy who was an assistant to a producer. I didn't want them. Con- I wanted them to read the script as if it's this sort of mystery writer, as if it's this um, per- you know somebody who. Uh, is really a professional and not a guy who's answering phones and you know, and um, and uh, getting coffee at a production company. I love that so. Um, there was a little bit that little mystery, I think, also helped it got people to read it right away because it went out with a very you know, sort of interesting cover page. Uh, and I think that helped. Wow, so cryptic! Um, Yeah, you know, Dom, I want to go back to something you said about you know, uh. I think, I think that I definitely was very naive, but I think that what the biggest fear for me was what I'd be doing if I wasn't writing. Hmm. And there were so many signs that told me to pack it up and go home. You know, I had gotten a job moving beds at the AFM. You had to go to Santa Monica and move mattresses out of rooms so those rooms could become offices for the mm-hmm. AFM. And on my way there, they were paying me $125 on my way there. Guy hit me, didn't have insurance. The cost of the action was $500. So I was, I lost $350 that day. That should have been a sign. Go home. Uh, My car, my salvage vehicle. Now I didn't, I wasn't smart enough to look at the pink slip when I bought the car and it said SLVG. I didn't know what that meant. Um, but one day the transmission was busted, and I had to go from La Lassianega and Wilshire all the way to Hollywood Boulevard and um in reverse, and it took me two hours. Yes, <laughs> I, uh, true true story. <coughs> Make a note of that and the
2: time <laughs> the time because that's that's going to be a clip.
4: Well, reverse still works <laughs>
2: in reverse.
4: I
3: would drive a block, stop, you pull the and chest Pumitari. What's that?
2: You pulled a Chaz Palminteri, yes.
4: Sunny. <laughs> I love it. You're stopping up the car. You're pretending that you're looking for parking spots. It's <laughs> I of, would that's look fucking for a
3: parking spot, then I would drive another block. I didn't have the money. First of all, I couldn't leave the car overnight at the office. You weren't allowed to, and I didn't have the money to get it fixed or get it towed. So I drove it back uh, to my um, no, apartment that I was staying at parked it outside uh, and then started taking the bus to work until I got money to fix the car and the day after I parked it outside I come outside and the window smashed oh wow so again so many All the signs. signs and they and they, yeah, stole, and then,
4: they stole the boombox
3: <laughs> <laughs> no I would take the boombox I would take the boom box out at night I bring it in because And I would actually – after my car, the the window got smashed, I used to leave my windows down because I just figured (laughs) it's easier to – you know, it's easier just to have them go through the car if they wanted something than uh, – Break it, yeah, Yeah. get a new window. window. Yeah, smart.
2: (laughs) No radio. I mean, what are they going to take?
4: Now, Dom, we uh – you got to share this because, again, just to, to you know, segue from the Demolition Man, right? Um, Dom, this, oh uh, yeah, yeah. This is great. so. There's, uh,
2: there's a there was a, a a great article by Mick LaSalle. Uh, he said, uh, "Demolition Man anticipates a future in which one half of the population is humorless, delicate, and too politically correct to breathe." While the other half is perpetually enraged and glorifying in its own pristine ignorance.
4: That's it. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a pretty, great, uh, that's a great take on where that movie was made and that world that they that he painted <laughs> and the world that we're living
3: in now. Yes, it's not far off. Almost thirty years ago, you imagine nineteen ninety three that movie came out.
2: Yeah, I mean the you know. irony and all that, you know. Well, so- you
3: think it's actually been 30 years because it was written a couple of years before yeah. that. So, yeah, so yeah. It
4: seemed so insane at the time and now yeah. it's not that far off. Crazy. So yeah.
2: so so then you 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 go off and you write your your uh you're writing on 24. Right?
3: Yeah, that was, there was a big gap in between, you know, Demolition Man, which I sold, I think I was like 24 years old. Sold out
2: the movies and, Uh, yeah.
3: Yeah, there was other, uh, I did a lot of rewrites, I did some pilots. uh I did um La Femme, a show called Le Femme Nikita, which was really my first TV job. The old La Femme Nikita, not the one that you guys know. Oh,
4: right. No, I was in uh, I was in high school. I, I watched sometimes I'd watch it late at night and it may or may
2: not have been muted.
3: Going through know. puberty.
2: <laughs> you would use a retin A.
3: I've heard that before, actually. That's funny. Um Yeah, so there's, yeah, and then I, um, so Joel Cernow, who created 24, sorry, who created 24, also created La Femme Nikita, uh, and I worked with him for a number of years, and uh, when he um, was doing 24, he uh, was kind enough to invite me uh, on that show as an EP. What season,
2: what season of uh, 24 did you work on? I think it
3: was season four.
2: Okay. Uh, So when I, you weren't there when I got there. Well, when I did that, I guess. No, so. no. Okay. Yeah. No,
3: I was there. I was only there for a season. And then I went to um, CSI New York, which uh, I, I ended up on that show for about six years. You know, it's interesting about 24. 24, I looked at it like the Yankees. Uh, you, there, Everybody on that staff was an executive producer. There were no staff writers. Uh, and they were all like heavy hitters, you know, Howard Gordon and there was Steve Cronish and mm-hmm. uh Joel and uh, Bob Cochran. They were all guys that had their own shows. Um and uh and then me. And uh I really learned so much from them. And um and it was a it was pretty amazing because each one of them, you know, could could carry or run their own show, and it was just this bullpen of of like Yankee greats that you would go and work with every day. It was, it was a lot of fun.
2: How did the remake for Hawaii 5 come, come about? And how, how was that presented to you? Or did you present that to, to CBS? I, um,
3: no, that was, uh, so I, I, the year before I'd written a, uh, a pilot, um, for like, uh, what I thought was like a rock and roll Quincy type of show. Um and uh, you know and, Quincy. And
2: Hold on, Peter. You know Quincy?
3: know
2: Quincy. I don't know, know, Quincy. Quincy. Jack know Quincy.
4: don't shame no. me for not knowing Quincy.
2: Yeah, I yeah. gotta send it to you.
4: I, I knew Lefemme. I, I knew You say you're
2: ninety percent sure. <laughs> I'll
4: it's get you that ten
2: percent. <laughs> <laughs> I
3: should say. So I. This is sort of hip take on a on a corner, <laughs> on a medical examiner show. I love and that actually, show, Peter. What's that?
2: I loved Quincy. <laughs> I yeah, love watching the rerun. I mean I wasn't I was a little kid when it when it aired but I, the reruns I, I i remember I bought all the seasons on Amazon oh, and watching God. them back, but I remember watching them as a little kid when they were on and I, I, I always loved Jack Klugman because I remember him Odd from Odd Couple yeah. and, which was on WPIX yeah. at 11 o'clock every WPIX. day
4: WPIX Channel yeah. 11
2: yeah, yeah. <laughs> except if there was a Yankee <laughs> game on, but, uh, with a great show. Yeah.
3: Well, anyways, I, so I wrote this script for CBS. Uh, they liked it. They had put me, um, together with Alex uh, who played, uh, McGarrett on five. so I had met Alex on this medical examiner show and, um, and James Mangold, uh, who just did, um, uh, Ford versus Ferrari. He was attached as the director. great film. Uh, he did Logan. Mm-hmm. Um, and we met with Alex to maybe play the corner. And uh, ultimately, the show didn't go. Um, and then I was at a CBS party. And uh, there was an executive there who said, uh, you know, we really love that script. And sorry, we didn't make that script. But uh, we're starting to talk about development for next year. And we're talking about taking another stab at a Hawaii Five-0. Um, and I know that they had spent a couple of seasons developing, trying to get a script that they were going to go forward with, but I guess the latest script, they, uh, were not going to move forward with. So they were going to start all over again, uh, with a new script. And they said, would you be interested in pitching? And I said, yeah, I, they said, do you know the show? And I said, it was my dad's favorite show. I remember very, you know, faintly, vaguely, these moments where my dad would sit in front of the TV eating grapes or a bowl of ice cream, and I would sit by his knee. uh, And I remember the palm trees. And I remember, you know, you know, I remember sort of some of the, you know, the landscape, but I knew how important the show was to him. Because, you know, when you grow up in Montreal and you really have two seasons, winter and July. <laughs> the, idea of going, the idea of going away um, to Hawaii, even though it's on a TV, the idea of that escapism was very meaningful to him. Oh, I know. So I thought I would love to do that show and bring it back and bring it back in the same way it was meaningful to my dad. To say I would bring it back to say, you know, the same way where it'd be meaningful to other people that um, maybe can't get to a place like Hawaii, uh, but could live vicariously through the characters week to week. So um, I, and now it wasn't, you know, didn't, they didn't just hand me it. They said, okay, come in and pitch. And I put together a a pitch um, and really sort of drilled down into what I thought was missing from the original show, which, you know, again, in its day, it was such a popular show and it's, uh, it's you know, it's on for 12 years and the idea of trying to live up to that is is daunting and um but I thought if I could come at it from character um and uh and make that the sort of the the uh, foundation of the show uh and not worry about the cases um i I may be able to do something that could last. and uh so I really spent all my time working on who the characters were. Um, and, uh, I went in and I, again, I also want to give the, the pilot some meaning, some, some, you know, um, cause I'd always wondered like what brought Jack Lord to Hawaii or, you know, you know, Dano, you know, he clearly wasn't born on the Island. So what got him there? So I wanted to answer those questions. Um, and I went in, I pitched it and they liked it enough to commission a script and, wrote the script uh it's like a serial
2: component know. to the show right it's like some,
3: what's that um, like a,
2: a serialized component to the show where it's some some of the stories carry over
3: yeah so for it's, sure. it's
2: not a case of the week kind of kind of kind of kind of thing i i well, i, I know, you know you did that with Magnum you yeah, did that with Magnum yeah too. we tried to do yeah. a lot
3: of like you know closed ended which you know the sort of like there was a a, ca- a case of the week but there was a lot of threads that were serialized threads that went you know Mythology. for years yeah. uh and um yeah and and it just sort of you know i delivered the script and uh things came together you know we got a great you know great director and casting was everything you know i feel like if i i you know i could have wrote the greatest script in the world i wrote you know i think a decent script but really what made the thing come alive or made it last 10 years was the casting it was Everybody was cast so well. Um, I, you know, interesting enough, I I was really writing, the first person to be cast was Daniel A. Kemp. Um, And I started writing that character, Chino Kelly, to Daniel. But I originally, that character was going to be more like Sean Connery in The Untouchables. He was going to be sort of like the wise uncle, um, the elder statesman of the team. Uh, and then, I got a call one day when I was writing the script and and they said, uh, Daniel De Kim is in town. He'd like to meet with you. And, um, and he came in my office and, and said, I know you're doing Hawaii 5 I love to be a part of it. Uh, my kids really love uh, the Island. They love their school. Uh, our home is there. Um, and we had this great meeting. And at the end of it, I, we said goodbye. And I, went back to writing the script and I found myself writing to Daniel. And, uh, I think, you know, uh, uh, that meeting changed that character in a very significant way. Um, and made it so much better. Um, cause I, again, I think the casting for that show is everything. That's what made the show. I I've been very lucky casting wise, because I think, you know, the shows that I've been involved in have always had really strong casts and, um, and that's sort of, you know, people say, what's the secret sauce? Um it's not the it's not my writing, because I always said I'm not the best writer, I'm the hardest working writer. I think it's the casting. And I think, you know, when you get, you know, good people to say your words, uh, that's gold. And uh I've been blessed, I've been very lucky. Wow. Well, and I'm I- Dom, that's why that's why I've come to you a few times, come to the well a couple of times. So
2: I had a great time. I had a great time doing Magnum, going out there and uh yeah. I mean, I I I I remember. I I you sent me uh a, a, you 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 got my email and you sent me an email. He's like, "Hey, you know, I'm doing, you know, this pilot. I want to play this uh character as part of the mythology." I said, "Man, this guy reached directly out to me. I can't say no. I gotta go do it. Mm-hmm. And and uh and I re- I remember Magnum. I, I love I I remember watching Magnum. Okay. I, I knew exactly who he was talking about. Mm-hmm. The whole Vietnam, the guy comes back, puts the thing, the uh the bandana <laughs> on, Nuzo. I, I knew exactly who he was talking about. I was like, I have to do this, and then we became friends and the rest is history. But to make
3: Tom, I'll tell you something. If you If you ever watched the pilot for 5.0, everything is around the death of McGarrett's father. The the entire series was uh, built on the foundation of McGarrett coming home because of the death of his father. And that traumatic experience changed his life and put him on this course that started the task force. Nuzo, the character you played, had a very similar impact on the vision, you know, the vision that I had for the show, which was Nuzo's death was going to be a huge part of these guys and their lives going forward. Uh, in 5.0, and now I'm, I'm giving away something that is not formulaic. It may sound like it, but there was a uh, there was a connection between father and son that that show was about. And that really, and I'm talking about 5.0. Because it was about me and my father watching that show. So the series, you know, when I brought it back, it was really grounded in the idea of a father and his son. Magnum was always about friendship. And it was always about, yeah. And so you're the catalyst for everything. And the idea of Nuzo being, you know, being the sort of catalyst of the, of their in in their lives and and what changed them and moved them and um was everything and the news was a big part of it i mean news was a big part of the original show also i just felt that was a a no-brainer in terms of what uh uh puzzle pieces you bring to the the new you know new. it was
2: was really cool because a lot of a lot when when news was brought in uh, first, I got to work with every, work with all those guys, and we had, we always had a blast. But uh, it was always these flashbacks to when they were uh, in the war, you know, and um, some really good moments. Um, tough because I would fly in. I, I don't know if you're aware of this, Peter, because I think only maybe once or twice you were actually in Hawaii when I was there. I would fly in. Not a big flyer. Not a big flyer. (laughs) Not a big flyer. (laughs) No, I'm
3: not. And
2: um, I would fly in, and I would be taking directly to wardrobe. So now this is a 13, 14 hour flight. Now, I'm looking to go to sleep. I'm tired, just the, the I don't sleep on the plane, and and everybody, yeah, you get to go to Hawaii, you know, yeah, it's, it's. Yeah. and I'm like, yeah, but I gotta get off a plane, go to wardrobe, then try to go stay awake, so, cause I'll be, I'm definitely working the next morning, and I would work the next day, the next day, and let me tell you, I didn't really give a shit, I had such a great time, man, awesome. I had such a great time <laughs> with OJ, and, and uh, Purdy and, and 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 the maniac and Steven. <laughs> and um, I just I I loved being there. I love loved doing that show, playing that character, and I I have to thank you for that. You know.
3: Oh well, I, no! Th- I have to thank you for that because I the fact that I got you to play Nuzo and the opportunity to bring Nuzo back and the opportunity to make Nuzo a part of that the legacy of the show. I mean that. Was everything to me, but I want to say that we had such a great time during the pilot. We Turtle went away Bay. To that. Remember, <laughs> we went away to Turtle Bay, and it was like you, me, Zach, uh, Stephen, and uh, and, Jay. and we stayed. Um, we stayed in that one suite. Yeah. Um, and uh, it was that was gr- that was great. Yeah, that, that villa. Yeah, it, uh, it was
2: such a great time. Yeah. Such a great time!
3: Yeah, it was a lot of fun, and uh, I really, uh, you know, I love you, Don. So that was a great treat for me to spend that quality time with you.
2: Ah, uh, I, uh, I, I, I look back on it all the time, you know, and. Um,
3: I, I'm surprised they didn't make you work the minute you landed. I, uh, <laughs> the fact that they. Brought you to wardrobe and let you work the next day. That's uh, that was pretty terrible. You hey, got to do Lucky
2: they didn't make me work that you day. You got to do a better job. Sleeping through those scenes. You got to do a better job I'm... scheduling your flights.
4: No, I, 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 I,
2: I'll never forget this. So we, we, the pilot, I was so fucking tired. That's a long flight. I, I just I was oh, so that. tired, and I remember going to sleep, and then I woke up at eleven thirty, <laughs> and. I'm looking on the balcony, and I'm looking at. I was staying at the hotel. to See the harbor. The boat, it was like so beautiful, and I'm thinking to myself, "Fuck, <laughs> they're picking me up at 4:30." <laughs> <laughs> <This> is, <laughs> I, I got it to I'm you. in every scene, yeah, right. so I know I'm doing a 13 hour day. Um, and I got through that first day, but I gotta tell you, I I had a great time because we had the ceremony. When we're doing the pilot, yeah. the first day I shot the first day we were shooting the scene on the stage and yeah. at the the POW camp. Yeah, I was like, "Wow, this is great! I had such a great time, such a great experience for me."
1: How long were you um, out there for?
2: I would have probably never went to Hawaii if it wasn't for Peter. Oh really? I, yeah, if it wasn't for you probably—it's too fucking far, man. <laughs> you don't even want to fly to friggin' There's a... no train that goes yeah. to Hawaii. <laughs> I, I, I love Australia. Yeah, you ain't gonna see ain't going plane going to Australia. You ain't gonna see any
4: pictures of Dom holding the koala. Any movies? In Australia? Yeah, I mean, if I got to do a movie,
2: if I got to do a movie, I, I'll suck it up. But yeah. uh it's—it uh yeah. it was. Well,
3: you, you gave me the greatest gift. Dom. Um, you really did. That oh, character man. was fully realized. The character was great and i think you really cared in that pilot uh and you 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 knew what their you know how great a loss uh your character was to to the other characters i mean it was really 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 a huge thing for the show
4: and i just want to ask just one question because yeah. it's like we love this show because we get to interview people that are you know either behind the scenes or right you know in front of the camera all this time and we get to Meet the real people. You know, we get to show the world who these folks are and what drives them, where they started from and where they got to. And in this day and age where there's this, you know, it's so much about cancel culture and people just read articles. They don't get to know people about for who they are. They read the articles and they make their judgments. Now, you had such an amazing run at CBS running all these shows. And then this giant bomb gets dropped in your lap last year and now our guests are getting to listen and know who you are and figure out, you know, the kind of person you are. But what has that experience, what has that meant for you that you've gone through over the last year?
3: Well, it's a good question. And I really, you know, I haven't really talked about it uh, since it happened. And um, it's humbling, it's scary. um, You know, you spend uh, every, you know, Every free moment, thinking about it. Um, look, here's the thing. I I had an amazing career. Uh, I was so lucky. I mean, the fact that I got to work as long as I got into work and and done something that I love, truly love. I wish I had a hobby that I loved as much as writing, and I don't. It's so pathetic. Um, <laughs> I love. I, I I love what I do, um, and you know. I hit a brick wall at hundred miles an hour last year. Uh, I was blindsided, but you know, I also have to look and, you know, you spend a lot of time reflecting. I, I, uh, actually for the first time in my whole life, I had time to actually talk to a therapist, go for walks with friends and better understand myself. Now I was definitely a, a tough boss. I demanded excellence from people. I was a serial micromanager. Um, I, it took me uh, way too long to learn how to delegate. Um, and that's frustrating for people.
0: You know, yeah. it takes
3: away their power. When you're making all the decisions and you're rewriting all the scripts and you're saying no to every idea that comes through the door, that's frustrating for people. Um, and, you know, I never really took that into account. I just wanted to keep, you know, the the machine moving. Um, I did what I thought I needed to do to keep the show going. Um, in hindsight now, there's so many things I could have done better. Um, but I know I was, I was a tough boss. I had, you know, I had a, you know, most of the time, 90, you know, ninety-five percent of the time, an idea came into the room, into my room, uh, and I would, I would pass on it. Uh, I was very specific with the stories I wanted to tell, um, and you know, it was just that was the way it was. And uh, I, you know, I rewrote. Uh, I didn't have the patience, I think, to um, allow people to get their scripts to a place where. Um, they could go before the cameras. I would, I would probably, you know, uh, for the most part, after one, two drafts, I would take the script away and I'd rewrite it. I just, I should have had more patience for that. Things that I, I did, I think I did, and I didn't um, know what the, what you know, what the long term effects were of them. You know, the thing that hurt me the most, because I know, I know I was a tough boss, you know, it's not like somebody didn't say, you know, Peter's a tough boss. Um, so I knew that I was aware of that. Uh, I knew that my expectations were high. Um, I knew that I, you know, look, I'm not perfect uh, by far. There's so many mistakes I made uh, uh, in my career, um, but I always try. You know, the article that was in Vanity Fair didn't talk about all the people that got their breaks, all the assistants that got their first scripts, uh, all the good, because that's yeah. that's not a story. Um, um, every, you know, everybody that, you know, uh, uh, moved up, um, that started as a PA that became a writer or, you know, moved up from assistant editor to editor, all the there's 900 people that work for me, not 30, that's 900. 900. Um you know the thing that got me through uh this whole experience was everybody that reached out uh the crew who I still talk to regularly the cast who I talked to regularly of all the you know the shows that really helped but I had to spend a lot of time you know and I even went obsessively through emails just to see what what did I do and how did I do it wrong um and I'm learning so many lessons Uh, with regards to you know the mistakes I made but the thing I was going to go back to this the thing that that really hurt me the most was the issue that Lucas uh, the guy who played MacGyver yeah who had said that uh, during the first season of the show that I had made fun of his legs that I had body shamed him and that's the thing that killed me because you know Lucas was told that by a third party. Um I worked with him for 4 years. The idea of that and again his feelings are so important here. The idea that he lived thinking that I said that for 4 years and never said anything. That kills me. Yeah. Because if you look at my social media, uh I treated him like a little brother. He was I was a champion of him. Uh I even hired his manager who had one client which was Lucas. I hired his manager uh, in his office, his manager's office was about 20 steps from mine to make sure that I had a direct line to Lucas and, and that I made sure that, because look, doing a show, being the lead of a show is really tough. Um, and the idea of knowing uh, when there's going to be a problem or anticipating a problem, that's the key to good, you know, keeping the show going. So the manager really was in my ear daily Um, and he worked for me. So the manager worked for me. So I knew what was going on day to day. And I had never heard about this situation. I feel that if I knew that he had felt that way, and he said it happened season one, I think I could have gone flown down to Atlanta, had a conversation with him. And we could have resolved that, that, you know, with a hug and, and, you know, a dinner and, and it would have been over. But You know, what kills me is that he, you know, thought I said that and and lived with it for four seasons and um, finally, you know, finally spoke up about it. Um, So that's, you know, that's, you know, the the other stuff that's, you know, that's, you know, the price you pay for making mistakes. Uh, That the thing with Lucas, that's that's the thing that hurt me the most because I was really blindsided. You know, we were really super close for so long. Um, and that's the one that came completely out of the blue. Uh, and, um, you know, I still, you know, I, you know, I still can't, you know, wrap my head around it. Cause I, I feel like, you know, the idea of living, thinking your boss, you know, made fun of you, you know, that's hurtful. Um, I get it. Um, I just wish that I had known. So we could have resolved it, you know, four years ago.
1: An open line of communication would have, uh. Yeah.
3: And I, say- yeah, that's why I, I. That's why I hired the manager. Well, that's you what know, he thought. Like,
2: that's what he thought he had. Yeah. yeah well.
3: Yeah. yeah. You know. Remember. Remember. In, in Raiders of Lost Ark, the they said that the uh, Ark of the Covenant was a uh, a direct uh, line to God. You know. Uh, so uh, the manager was my direct line to uh, to Lucas. Yeah. So anything that was an issue, any problems, anything that I could do. Um, uh, that was my conduit and it was all great until I found out that this was an issue that he, um, you know, that he lived with and thought that I had said. So
2: have you, have you, have you reached out to Lucas?
3: Yeah. I sent a, I, I talked to his manager and, you know, i sent him an apology and uh, again, I, you know, look, it's, I don't know if it's, it's, um, it's hard because I think that once you go on the record and you say something like that, and then the next thing you're friends with somebody, I don't know if that's a good look. So I think for him, uh, he knows that I'm sorry. Uh, he knows that, um, it's something that I, you know, I wish we had resolved, you know, some time ago, uh, his manager knows that as well. And, and it is what it is. You know, I think, um, you know i was thinking about writing an op-ed about the experience and uh um because you know we've had so many exchanges over over the years and we were so close and something like this you know really could have been resolved um but uh look i at some point i hope we could get back to the you know the place we were and um and i think that um you know it's a huge you know it's a huge lesson i i probably had blinders on and there's probably signs that I could have seen that I didn't see and
2: um I mean you also had a lot going on, Peter. I mean you had three yeah, shows I mean, I'm not but, I'm not, you know, not making any excuses, but I, you, you know
1: it seems like he's a very you know he wants this these shows to get done and done properly and you know, I I'm that I'm a lot like that as Dom knows. I, I'll put people's emotions to the side because I know what's important to me is getting this stuff done. Um, so, I totally get where he's going with yeah. all the stress that he's on there. Yeah.
3: You know, the job is constantly putting out these fires day to day and things slip through the cracks. Um, And, you know, you could say something that's, you know, that could be interpreted a certain way or you could do something that's interpreted a certain way. You know, I used to come in the office and go straight to my office. A lot of times I didn't say hi to anybody because I'd either, you know, be focused on the first phone call that I have to make. You know, and I realize now that that's you know that sends a message, that sends a signal. Um, you know, everything you do oh, yeah. um, is is you know is 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 looked at. Every action you do, um, you know, I you know I made mistake. I kept people too long. I you know I I just did I I the list is is endless. Um, and that's what I spent the last you know eleven months thinking about and working through is how did i get to this place but you know the fact that i got to work for 30 years you know i think i got in the guild in 89 so i you know it's been a it's been a while what is that 32 years (laughs) um
2: got me by three i'm just
3: lucky for that i i have you know i you know i'm not angry i'm not bitter i understand that you know the world has changed and uh uh i need to change with it so well, I just honestly,
4: I thank you so much for just talking about it. I love yeah. I love getting the insight from people who are behind these articles and these stories and just what people will get from hearing this, even before we brought this up, is that you know when you're talking about your early pitches with demolition and other things, you have a life pattern of looking back at the things you've done and saying, you know, I could have done that better or maybe I could learn from that. It's about growth. So everything I'm getting from you is growth and the world is changing and the climate is changing. So... Even now, like you have time to reflect on this and how you know what you did right, what you did wrong. You just want to be a better person and learn from it. You know what I mean? And so that's amazing. Yeah, that's is, amazing. That's and that's all we're all trying to do is yeah. learn from our mistakes. Yeah, we all we all have mistakes. a we all have a fucking yeah. closet full of of things we could have done differently, and we're just not all having articles written about us. You know what I mean? It's like we're not all under right. a microscope. So. It's just nice that you would share that with us and uh,
0: we appreciate
3: well, it. Well, I'll, I'll leave you with one other thing about that. You know, one of the actors on uh, Five O said to me when this whole thing happened, he said, you know, people, these people think they're doing something to you, but they're doing something for you. And it didn't, that didn't land with me at first. And what I realized over time and, and all the reflecting and getting to sort of reconnect with my family Something that I really was, you know, not very good at because I was so busy. The idea of taking walks with one of my sons every afternoon. And I realized that it's, it is something for me because, you know, like you said, you, it makes you a better, this kind of experience, this trauma, if you process it the right way, makes you a better person. And I think allows you to grow in ways you never would have grown. If I was on that hamster wheel. I used to say this, I said, I was going to either die of a heart attack in my car on the way to the studio, because it was an hour drive each way, or die writing one of these procedural scripts. Um, And that would have been really sad. (laughs) And I think that I needed to grow as a human being, I needed to sort of take this time to to reflect on the things I was doing right, the things I was doing wrong. And I think this as bad as it is, and I don't wish this for anybody for it to ever happen to somebody. But, you know, when I look back at the year, I've grown so much. I've learned so much. I've connected with my family and friends and I've, I've, I think I've learned how to be a a better human being and a more well-rounded human being. And
0: Well, I, I I, I, I,
2: I follow you on Twitter, obviously. And, and it's, Anybody who's listened to this follow Peter on on Twitter and and you 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 see, it's all about his family. It's all about his kids. It's all about Wyatt's garage. It's all about um, <laughs> it is it, it, it it's is eight, it's it's, yeah. it's family trips trips here trips there. What his sons are doing. What his daughter's doing. Enjoy it. Uh, that's, that's that's all it, it is. It's that's all it is. and. Uh, they're lucky to have you. Yeah,
3: it's great. I'm yeah. lucky to have them.
2: I know. I know. Yeah, both ways. I'm very
3: lucky. You no, know, they're so supportive. You know, I'll tell you one other thing. I got to tell you this because it really, like, it it was uh, it, it, it real. I think it got me through the first 24 hours of the whole experience. You know, I didn't realize it was going to be a big deal uh, when it when it got in in the trades and everything. I real I didn't realize like I just thought, hey, I'm just a writer. You know, it's not going to it's not going to, no one's going to know, but it it got in the trades. It was like, an, it picked up by all these different publications. Peter Lenkov gets, gets canned from CBS, uh, accused of a toxic work environment. Um, and I thought, okay, I got to figure out that first day. I got to figure out how to tell my kids and what to do. And I'm scrambling. I'm talking to, you know, uh, my agents and lawyers and friends and all these people. And, my son, what, my youngest son, sends me a, a text that says, Are you okay? And then a green puke emoji. Mm. <laughs> and I said, I said, and I wrote back why. And as soon as I said that, I realized why. And I ran upstairs and I realized that he somehow found out. And what he had a Google alert for my name. So that thing was going off at like noon that, you know, the the day after I got, I got canned, that day was going off like crazy. So my wife and I brought the two boys, my girls were not around, but we brought the two boys into a room and we said, we were going to tell them what happened. And my wife says, uh, well, look, you know, it's, you're going to read this. There's going to be a lot of things that are said. And my older son, who was uh, 14 at the time, says mom you don't have to tell me who my dad is yeah I know who he is awesome and I walked out of the room yeah. and I was in tears yeah and that got me through those first 24 hours because that's tough you yeah. know um and um, I
2: can only imagine him
3: saying mean. that him saying that and then he made this video uh supporting me on he did this video compilation and put it on. And I didn't see it for a couple of days, but people were saying, "Oh, what Sam did was so beautiful." And I went to the Wyatt's Garage, his charity website, and I saw this video, and that just like broke me. Amazing. I was like, "In, in it's amazing. I was a mess, sobbing amazing. mess."
2: Goes to show you what's important. Yeah. yeah. What's your biggest pet peeve?
3: Um my biggest pet peeve uh probably uh when someone says i'll be honest or let me be honest (laughs) because i always think what's the alternative are they gonna i want you to lie to me (laughs) that's like that's
2: like
0: uh, with all all
2: due respect respect, yeah No but
3: disrespect. You you're
4: an asshole.
2: Yeah, I might okay. be a little out of line yeah. here. Yeah.
3: This is going to come right? with complete disrespect. But, but that was uh yeah.
2: Dom. Oh, what was that comedian? Dom, Dom Maganera. Yeah, 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 Dom Herrera. No. Yeah, Dom Herrera. He had the whole bit. Yeah, yeah. No what I'm going to do to you is uh, <laughs> uh, you're up on you're up on a karaoke stage. Yes, Peter. What are you singing? Born to Run. Oh, another Springsteen. Another yeah. Yeah, yeah, Bruce. Yeah,
3: yeah. Bruce. <laughs> damn Yeah, you suck him. Tim. Okay, so American girls. Tom Petty. <laughs> all all right. Right. Okay, all right, all right, all right. Okay. 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 There's, I but Bruce. Bruce is my guy. So uh, wow, Bruce, I will. While I will. Bro. Bro. That's, That's whatever he what what guy. I I move move <laughs> He's from Wildwood.
2: <laughs> 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 Save that sure. for after the game. All right. Um, if you could go back in time and give yourself a piece of advice, how old are you, and what's that piece of advice?
3: That's a great. Um, this, this, this stuff. That's a great question. That's a that's a tough question. I would say that it was it would be the day I was driving backwards and and <laughs> uh, don't be scared. <laughs> And I would say to myself, don't be scared. You'll have a car that drives forward. (laughs) (laughs) one day." I think that's, uh, this is not the end. And the other one would probably be, um, uh, I remember, um, you know, my, I remember when I was a kid and I was flunking French class and I was, my dad came from a parent teacher meeting and he stood in my doorway and he said, uh it looks like they're going to hold you back because you're, you're not doing good in any of your classes and French you're plunking. And he said to me, uh, you gotta, you know, you gotta, you know, get your shit together basically. Um, I was so terrified that I wasn't gonna, you know, amount to anything. I probably would say to myself, relax, mm-hmm. It'll, it's going to be fine. Yeah. And um, because I, I was a mess after that. I thought I was going to be held back and I I didn't know what I was going to do. And I just started thinking about maybe leaving school, maybe getting a job. I didn't like I, I just, you know, I thought school was everything at the time. Mm-hmm. And um, I probably would have said to myself, relax, take it easy, uh, do the best you can. Um, you know, life's going to, you know, give you some ups and downs, but you'll get through it.
1: Yeah, I try to tell my kids that now. I don't know if you guys do the same, but I'm like, it might seem like a big deal right now in high school, but it's really not. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, it is a big deal to you right now, but in the long run, it'll all work out. And, yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: I try not to pressure my kids with grades. I, you know, they if they work their ass off and if they, you know, I get a B on C, they work their ass off. Yeah. Um, I just, you know, I didn't look at it that way. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, mm-hmm. And
3: I wish I had.
2: Yeah. Karen, Pat, you have a question?
4: Yeah.
3: Um, <clears throat> oh, boy.
4: Uh, you have written one and produced another of uh, Paulie Shore's <laughs> films. Um, son-in-law, P.S., I've watched it a thousand times. I was a, ch- a tween in the early 90s, so uh, son-in-law was, you know, it was just on HBO all the time, and I watched it all the time. Still love it. I still sing John Denver, you know, the scene when he's writing. In the, <laughs>
3: in the, the he writes class.
4: crawl using oh the – Oh, my gun. God. He writes crawl using the – oh, my God. Okay, so amazing. My question for you is can you name two other Pauly Shore movies? Oh, God.
3: Oh, yeah. In the Army Now and BioVille. Wow. Oh, man. He Ooh. knows his
4: – he knows his people. I mean, he knows his
3: people. Well, Paul, you know, Paulie's Paul, a good friend, so still to this day. So I, uh, he would, you know. That's he, he great. That divided note was. Was uh, he
2: an Encino man? Yes, yeah. Encino man.
3: Jeez, uh, there's a class act. Bro. He was a like, uh, you know, class but, act? Yeah, he it's was a class act. It's interesting. We made that movie. We made that movie. We were both about 25 years old, and uh, we were kids, and no you know, he had just done Encino Man, but really had not really starred in a movie Uh, because it hadn't come out yet. And uh we were like two kids and somebody just gave us a pile of money to do something. We just had the great time.
4: Dude, I was like between the ages of 12 and 16 when all those movies came out. I saw every single one of them. I was like,
3: <laughs> real, <laughs> yes.
4: <laughs> Tell him I said that.
3: Yeah, hi. it's funny. It's funny, it came out the same year as Demolition Man and uh and they're so different.
2: Peter. Terrific, man.
3: At Hot Seats, not that hot. I told no, you.
2: It's fun. It's fun. Yeah. Um, but uh thank you for coming uh into Dom's yeah. Den and Our uh yeah, sharing so much, sharing man. all these stories with us. Yeah. I truly thank appreciate it. Thank awesome. you so much. Thank you. Terrific man. I miss you, pal. Miss you
4: too buddy. We look forward we to we, we look forward to whatever's next Peter. Yeah, whatever's yeah. down the pipe. Thank
3: you. Awesome. Thank you. All right Peter. Take care. Bye well. bye. Take care brother.